Sanam Malalai, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's really a, a thrill to have you. Uh, there's so much going on in the world that you can speak to in a unique and powerful way. Thank you very much for uh, making the time to come and, and visit with us. These are difficult times, I think. Um, Sanam, why don't you just take a minute and provide some context for our discussion today? Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Good morning. Um, thank you very much for having us. As the context is, uh, it's September 16th. It's a month since the fall of Kabul to the hands of the Taliban. Um, it's about two and a half weeks since the U.S. Um, under President Biden decided to withdraw its troops um, ahead of time, ahead of the original schedule, so August 31st as opposed to September 11th. And... Um, leave in its wake a massive vacuum. Um, and, you know, vacuums and black holes get filled with very nasty uh, people and things. Um, and so we are left with, we are now in the, the, dealing with a situation where the people that we work with in Afghanistan, and, and I can explain more about our organization, but the people that we work with who are overwhelmingly Afghan women-led Organization, local organizations doing peace building work, um, people who are working in their communities to prevent violence against women and children, to deal with the prevention of ta Taliban um, recruitment, to train local police, um, to be good at doing community policing, people like that, um, women, I should say, uh, which is not your not your sort of the normal way we think about women doing development work. We often think about girls' education or, or health care and, you know, small livelihood type programs. This is, these are transformative people. They are super superheroes in their own context. And, um, and yet what we've done is by not really having a strong strategic vision in the diplomacy that we did with the Taliban, by not having Afghan women present in the talks themselves to, to engage directly about the future and about their demands and about things like protection of civilians and, and so forth, um, by stonewalling Afghan women for many years across many administrations, we have now left them. And uh, not only we've left them behind, but we've also left behind countless, countless weapons that is now in the hands of the Talib. Uh, we left behind uh, equipment, biodata. Um, when we emptied out, when the US emptied out of Bagram Airport at 3 a.m. in the morning in July, instead of doing a handover to the lo local Afghan commanders to say, here's the equipment and here's here's what we have, and um, you know, here are the cars and you know, uniforms and as I say, the weapons, um, we just our, our forces left and they left behind the prisoners. And so all of the prisons have been opened. And anybody who was in prison for whatever kind of crime, including a lot of murder and violence and rape, is now out. And the people that we are interact with, which is, as I say, our community workers who do this kind of work, or the prosecutors, or the judges, or the police officers, um, are now calling us, or writing to us, some people we know, some people we don't know, um, asking for help because uh, they are at risk and people are looking for them for reprisals. Um, and the, the Taliban that's taken over, um, with whom the United States negotiated, 
uh, now suggests that they're offering reassurances for women's rights, but they're not. So um, that's the context in which we're, we are doing our work. And uh, ICANN as an organization works with women's peace organizations in over 40 countries. But to, to be faced with the reality that our government and our allies together created one of the worst um, security, humanitarian, uh, sort of violations of human rights conditions and situations on the ground in a country, um, and, it, and it sits with us. That, that's a heavy burden to be carrying um, for those of us who are in the United States and trying to help. Yeah. It, what are you doing now to try and save the lives of these people you've been working with. Tell us a little bit about the activities you're undertaking right now today. The activities um, vary. Uh, they range from committing to them, even though we don't know, you know, as I say, I don't necessarily know the people who write to me, but they write, they write in Persian and Farsi, which is my mother tongue. And, um, and my commitment to myself for my own sanity and my own humanity, um, and to them is that anybody who writes to me, I will respond to them just to say, I'm here, uh, just to say, we are sorry. And that we are thinking about them and that we are trying in whatever way possible to help alleviate the conditions on the ground through our advocacy, but also where and when possible to think about how to help them out. Um, I'm connected to a network of people like myself in small organizations, in academia, or in bigger organizations, but actually working kind of on the side because, because our governments are not really part of this effort in a systematic way. Uh, talking to them and figuring out um, the strangest things. So right now, uh, you know, different governments are interested in different types of people. The French are interested in artists and musicians. So if an artist or a musician or a writer comes, we say, well, who do we know in France who can be talking to them and can we could suggest this? Some other government is interested in the judges and the prosecutors and the, the lawyers. And so it's like, so when a judge comes to me, I, I contact my, call my friend in another country and I say, hey, I've got another judge for you. Um, police officers. Uh, um, at the moment, we are dealing with incredible sense of fear and insecurity amongst especially women in the police force, uh, women who were trained by us, by NATO, who have certificates from all of our fancy institutions and who have been forgotten and forsaken and who are now being chased down. Um, so I'm trying to reach out to as many governments that we can get hold of. These people need visas to be able to leave. To be able to cross the border to Pakistan, they need a visa to a third country. Um, Every day I beg the United Kingdom, the United States, other European countries, please, will you issue these people visas? Um, I'm talking to airlines to say, will you give us discounted flights um, as and when flights start so that we can start to get people out in family groups to other countries? Because certain countries in Latin America are now saying, we'll take some of these folks on a humanitarian visa. But then they come with a caveat because they say, we'll take them for a temporary, on a temporary basis until they're resettled somewhere else, so long as you pay for them. Again, I run a small organization. I'm not a humanitarian organization. And I'm now having to think about how do I raise the funds and process and manage the possibility of, say, 500 Afghans 
if we're lucky, you know, 200 families or 100 families, if we're lucky, um, being able to get to the airport in Kabul, get on a plane and get out and go somewhere else um, in the hope that our bureaucracies will process their papers and let them come and live, you know, and create a new life somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's incredibly uh, difficult work, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Malalai, how are you engaged in this process as a program manager? Yeah. So actually I'm engaged in different bases. I'm from Afghanistan and um, it's been a few years that I'm in U.S. I'm engaged personally as well as being engaged at professional level, but I also engaged psych- emotionally because I also have years of uh, refugee experience in Iran. I was I was living in Iran as refugee, so now I very well understand the, the plights and the difficulties of these people at the very best chance if they get any opportunity to, to get out of the country still it's not a solution for them and still it's not the best thing that could happen to them and days and nights i i'm thinking of why why we are here why this happened to my people why this happened to my country i'm hearing so many different things some people even saying that these people just wanted to get out of the country and looking for a better chance. But the bigger question is that why, what, what we did that now they feel like to even hang, hang out from, hang up from the, the airplane and try to take the, the most dangerous way to just get out of the country because the situation is so dire because, because everything are, is taken from them because the Taliban has been imposed to them. And because of all those, this mismanagement and all this inconsistency, and actually, I just want to say because of all the lies that the international community told my people, and because, and honestly, I feel like we are betrayed. And that this is not, I, I think that majority of the afghan people save this um, share the same feeling with me and yes i'm i'm really a speechless and what i'm seeing i can't believe it i can't digest it i, I can't believe that all those human laws all those well written and well drafted uh, resolutions and and statements are just words, empty words, and no one, especially international community, um, isn't walking what they are talking. Yeah, I, I can only imagine how you must feel. Perhaps you can help me and others understand uh, something, Malalai, that many of us, I think, draw a parallel between the last 20 years of the U.S.-led involvement in uh, Afghanistan to the Soviet occupation in the 80s. And uh, it seemed to me, and I think others, that uh, the Afghani people were strong, resilient, and we were thrilled when uh, the Afghani people uh, rejected and threw out the Soviet invaders. Now we feel like 
some of us that that's what's happened to America, that we have been rejected and, and thrown out of Afghanistan in a similar way, that we've been rejected by the Afghani people in, the, in a similar way. How would you contrast those two experiences? Disabuse me of the idea that those are parallel situations if they aren't. Parallel. So uh, it's not about being rejected. It's mostly about what Afghan people want for themselves. Of course, neither Afghan nor any other country around the world want to be just misused and to be to be occupied and to be seen as a project. To be seen as you know, it's since since the uh, the Soviet era, even before that, till now. Every other country and every other power has been uh, fighting their own war on our back. And of course, this is not something that we want. So, so there, there definitely there will be resistance from the people. And in that, in that resistance and in that environment, so many other groups try to get the advantage of the situation. And we, have, we are seeing the proxy wars in Afghanistan. We are seeing the 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 vacuum that has been uh, created filled by other opportunistic uh, players of this game um yeah so now what would you add to that i would say i would say two things i th i think you know the narrative that that is being frankly sold to the to the american uh, audience is is a very false narrative this this was not a civil war it is not a civil war it never was a civil war. This is multiple layers of complexity because you have a Pakistan-India uh, um, competition being played on Afghan soil. You have the U.S.'s own um, war on terror that was being played out there. And you know, if we if we think about 9/11 and, and and in the world at the time there were about 5,000, you know, terrorists or affiliates of Al Qaeda. Um, the way that we have prosecuted that supposed war on terror, um, there are now hundreds of thousands, right? So, so, so these are our mistakes that 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 we are that that we are perpetuating. Now, in the case of what happened in Afghanistan, um, the question again to me, this is this is more around uh, a lens on our political leadership and our diplomatic efforts and and the and how those interests were played out because. From the outset, we worked with certain Afghan you know, uh, figures, um, including Mr. Khalilzad, who remains the U.S. envoy. Uh, we worked with Pakistan, who was the neighbor. The Taliban, there was a rejection of having the Taliban in the, you know, weakened Taliban in the formation of the government and, and back in 2001. They then retreat and they go to Pakistan. We continue to give aid to Pakistan. We And we turn a blind eye to the fact that this that the Taliban is, is kind of regaining strength over there, right? So that, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that on the ground, in the, in when we, you know, the, through the years that we were there, um, the people who made the, there, there are two things that, that, that went on. On the one hand, American contractors made trillions of dollars. So much of the money that was supposedly dedicated to Afghanistan was actually just recycled back into, into American pockets and, and, and companies here. But what's worse than that is that we never actually listened to what Afghans themselves were saying about what they need in terms of development and what they need in terms of livelihoods and safety and security 
because people don't want to go become a Talib. People go join a Taliban because it's income, because it might give them a modicum of protection. You know, if it, we can go back and look at the, 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 the almost insane kind of reports that we have of we went into Helmand and people were growing opium and opium, you know, uh, 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 poppies and, and for opium purposes. At the time, there was a suggestion that why don't we buy that opium for the medical market globally? We need that. Ah, but no, we were ideologically against it. So we destroy their crop, which means that we destroy their livelihoods. And somebody, we had a consultant that goes out and says they can grow cotton. And the Afghans are saying, yes, we'll grow cotton. But then somebody here turns around and goes, oh no, we have a law that says we can't support growing cotton in another country because that's in competition with our cotton farmers in the United States. There is an insanity about this. And this, these stories go on and on. So we failed. We didn't give the farmer, and we, we destroyed his pop, uh, poppy crop. We don't give him an alternative. What's his, what is he left with? He was left with, or he is a, as a character, but they're left with debt to the guy who had already bought the, the, the crop for, for the drugs. And the way they pay back that debt at some point was giving their daughters young daughters in marriage or as, as a, as a, as a payment for the debt. So, so that's one thing that, that the second thing is the next round, they say, well, we'll grow this stuff. And the Talib says, we'll protect you. And now they have an income. So what the, the, the way that we addressed these issues is so problematic. The level of corruption that we introduced into that country, bags and bags of cash by the CIA, paying off warlords all along for 20 years, Afghan women peace builders and Afghan citizens who were working to build their country and were taking that moment of time to actually build something, were warning against these things. And they were saying, please listen to us, work with us. We as a, we as in, as in the United States, whether it's the political, and I say, I, I don't think it's fair to blame the military entirely. The military does what it does and it, you know, they, they are a hammer basically. Um, but they were also instrumentalized by our political administrations across the different, uh, the different government, uh, administrations that we have. So it's, it's a failure on multiple levels. And yet within this time, within all this time that the, the fighting was going on and, and so forth, actually ordinary people were given the space. They went to school. There are judges. There are lawyers, there is a wealth of media and journalism and arts and culture, like in any country, ordinary people, you give them, peace is our norm, war is not the norm. And even in the time of war, people are still fighting for norm, normality. And this was created there. The country is, 62% of the country is under the age of 25. They don't even remember pre-Taliban. Over 40% are under 14. It's, it's a country of children. That's what it is. And, and what did we do? We sat in Doha, our diplomats sat in Doha and negotiated with the Taliban and handed the country over to them. And, and the, the implications of it are profound, not just, not just for Afghans. I mean, Afghans are at the epicenter of this and Afghan women specifically and, and the minorities, but the implications of what we've done are beyond anything that any of us can imagine because it's basically it's like saying 76 years of human rights and values that 
have been the superpower of the United States. That's been our real superpower of this country. I'm Iranian. I grew up during the Shah's time. And why did we aspire or why did we look to the U.S. and not to the USSR? It was the values. That's what inspires people because that's, there's a universality around that. All of that now has been discredited. You know, and let me just give you an example. When the evacuation was going on, a British man was allowed to evacuate his 200 stray cats and dogs that he had in a shelter. We couldn't get Afghan women through the gates of the airport to bring them out. So how can we talk about human rights? Yeah. Was that the Taliban preventing them from getting into no. the airport? No, it was the, it was the United States. It was the United States closing the gates. There was the United States saying Afghan nationals can't be at the airport at, after the after the attacks at the at, at the gates. And it was the United States closing the gate to its own allies who were bringing people in. So those people that we were trying to get in through other European countries got stuck there. Yeah. Now the the U.S. did evacuate well over a hundred thousand Afghani's. Uh, you. Uh, what's your reaction to that? You know, uh, I think people are being processed and I think it's interesting. It'll be interesting to know who and who is there and who's not and how many, you know, and, and frankly, you know, good luck to the people that made it who in principle wouldn't have made it, but they, they made it through the crowds and, and so forth. Um, I think if you look at the uh, ratios or the images, certainly from what we've seen, there is an overwhelming preponderance of men because the women that we were working with who have their children were not going to go into those crowds with little kids and risk being trampled over and harassed and, 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 and so forth. A lot of, a lot of the women um, who deserve, who really genuinely should be out were not because, because of the way that plant the, 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 the evacuation was done. We have people who were promised to be put on convoys and they were not. So there is, there's not, you know, it's 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 hard to explain. I it's it didn't have to be this way. The politics didn't have to be this way. The diplomacy didn't have to be this way. The evacuation certainly didn't have to be this way. Um, and we have left behind some of the most extraordinary people. And and one way that I would I would you know maybe describe this is that maybe the reason why people have been left behind is that in Washington, Afghanistan was described always as a war the theater of war. And, you know, we help those who helped us in our war. But Afghanistan is a country. And there were people living there who were neither on the side of wanting to make war on, on behalf of the United States or war on behalf of ta the Taliban. They were living their lives trying to build peace, actually, which is what most of us do. And it was people like us who were ignored and who have been marginalized and who have been silenced and are now have been literally put in a open de facto prison because because the borders are closed and 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 uh, you know the Taliban are now looking looking out looking for them so so we haven't valued peace we haven't valued rights we haven't valued those who were genuinely working for their country and also let's not forget about about those who could make who could make it out, they are not experiencing their best days. So I I see that in media 
They are trying to depict it as a very successful evacuation plan, but honestly, it wasn't for all the reasons that Sanamjan said, but also for even for those who could make it out, the camps that they are in, are the situation is not good at all. The food, the everything, I mean, it's far from a it is far from a successful evacuation plan. They are overcrowded. The food is so bad. They even, I was speaking with some of them and they even still are in the clothes that they left Kabul with. They even do not have access to clothes. And and yeah. and the long run program also, what I'm hearing is that the government only is providing them three, providing them support for three months, and after that they are just leaving them alone. And God knows what will happen to them. God knows what will happen to a illiterate young guy with five small kids. Yeah, yeah, these are scary times. I'd like to shift. Uh, I know this is a topic we could talk about endlessly, but I, I'd like to to shift gears a little bit and talk about ICANN. Uh, so now tell us about this organization that you have founded and organized and lead. Uh, it's well-respected. Um, you spoke not long ago uh, to the uh, United Nations General Assembly. You're a big deal. Tell us about what you what you have done with ICANN. Thank you. Um, I don't. I'm not sure how big a deal I really am. I. It, it's you know we we're trying. We do what we can. Is basically our motto. Um, so the idea behind ICANN is is that precisely because when conflict and war breaks out um, around the world over the 25 years that I've been doing this work. Uh, we find that certain people, um, and I do genuinely call them superheroes, um, in plain clothing or in you know in, in plain sight, emerge. Very often they're women, and they instead of running away from the problem, they run to the problem. So whether it's in Yemen and and trying to get you know they start often with humanitarian aid and trying to say well you know these kids need feeding or we have to get access we have to mediate to get access for humanitarian aid to get through or. Um, People have gone missing. Let's go look for them. You know, they've been abducted. Let's go look for them. So, so instead of running away from all of that, all the things that make the rest of us afraid or, or people are afraid of, they run to the problem to say, what can they do? These people often evolve and emerge into becoming the peace builders of their community, being the bridge between government and militias and, and, and talking to, you know, just trying to sort of find solutions. And it's a very lonely area of work because it's very easy to demonize the other side. It's very easy to duck your head down and say, okay, I'm only going to do children's education, for example, right? Or I'm only going to do, you know, women's sewing circles. Um, to, but to actually sort of say, no, to make things happen, we need to talk to each other and we need to have um, reduce the hate and we need to learn how to dialogue across our differences and so forth and find common solutions. Uh, not many people do this work. It's lonely. Um, as I say, it's very dangerous. And what we've done at ICANN is um, I've created a network and we have in over 40 countries, over 90 organizations, all of them women-led, working with men, many of them, of course, um, that do this kind of work. And part And so the way that we think about it is that we have on a personal level, we try and offer solidarity to people. Since COVID, we every month, every week we have a 
half an hour, one hour call and just from Cameroon to Nigeria to Yemen to Colombia, Afghanistan, people talk to each other across, um, across contexts. Um, so the solidarity level, we, we have a kind of a professional level where we say, well, these are such extraordinary people. They need to be heard and, and, you know, fellowship prizes, uh, the op opportunity to speak in international fora at the UN Security Council last week, we had a colleague speaking and, and so forth, so that, they, so that their voices and perspectives are heard and hopefully respected. And then we have a fund called the Innovative Peace Fund where we um, give grants to them. And the model that we have is that we trust their judgment. We know what they need on the ground. And we may help and say, well, you know, here's a, here's a better way or here's a different strategy, but, but they will tell us what the issue is and, and we, we trust their judgment in terms of what they think the need is. We don't tell them what they should be doing. But, the, but the, this is the kind of the model that we have, which is very much about being locally rooted and globally connected. Um, and, uh, and, and in my own work, I, you know, going back 25 years, I was involved, I started this work when I was in my 20s, and I was involved in a, in a global campaign that led to the first UN Security Council resolution on women, peace, and security um, that is kind of a, a, a common vocabulary and a, and a kind of recognized agenda for, for, for this type of work. Um, as I say, at the moment, you know, the Afghan situation is putting a light and, and, a, and a big question mark on genuinely how much um, our governments uh, abide by the rule of law, their own laws. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what we know is that on the ground, this is a, there is a universal and kind of timeless element um, to this issue of wanting be peace, building peace, um, stepping into that space and, and being those kinds of bridges and connectors. Malalai, what inspired you to join ICANN? Malalai, you're, you, yeah, there we yeah, go. Can you help me? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so I started with ICANN in 2018 as an intern, and then I'm, Really, I, I I was amazed by the by the work that we are uh, we are doing. Actually, in that time, they are they were doing at ICANN. Uh, I was somehow familiar with other organizations, very big big think tanks in Washington D.C. that with millions of dollars, they were working and issuing reports and issuing papers. But I was amazed by the how, by the level of effects and impacts ICANN uh, was having in uh, in very grassroots and women-led organizations around the world and with such a, a small team. And then I, I'm, I'm so grateful that I could start working with them. And since then, I've been engaged in the amazing work uh, at a very, very grassroots level. Oh, that's fantastic. Sanam, what is your superpower? Um, what is my superpower? Sometimes I think that my superpower is you know, the power of the powerless is speaking truth to power. So so being true to the true to what's going on. Um, and maintaining that integrity and maintaining that commitment and care and respect for our partners. So, so 
partly it's recognizing that, you know, I wish I had more power. Um, and we, we have power in strange ways in terms of trying to shift things, but it, what drives us is care, the power of caring, um, the power of imagination that things can be done differently. Um, and coming up with those ideas, it's amazing how unimaginative uh, people are. Um, the power of the can-do, you know, why not? I, I, I am allergic to people who say, I'm sorry, I can't, and I, you know, I won't. I've never been able to tolerate that kind of attitude. Um, empathy. Beca and again, I, you know, going back to what Malalai was saying, I was 11 when the Iranian Revolution happened. Overnight, our lives just disappeared. It, I, literally, my life, you know, it was, it was like you go to sleep in one life and then you're waking up in a completely different um, life. And so it, to know what that means for other people, to know what it means to fight for your country, um, these are the factors that kind of keep me going. But, but I think, you know, is it sometimes I, I think maybe, maybe we are a, a kind of an endangered species that, that actually still believe in collective work and these core values of, you know, human rights and, and the belief in peace, actually, that, that peace, yeah. peace is what we should be, which, which is what most people want. And they will do a lot to sustain it. Um, and somehow we've been overtaken by this glorification of violence. Yeah. Malalai, what's your superpower? So I would like to speak about it, not, not as an individual, but as part of a group, uh, the group of women peace builders whose superpower is building peace. I have always been inspired by uh, those women who are building peace um, in the most dangerous conflict zones under uh, harshest situation. I am personally pro-peace and I worked for peace in Afghanistan and Iran and I'm also coming from a, a educational background in peace studies. I did my international peace study master degree at University of Notre Dame, but uh, yet my superpower is actually derived from women peace builders around the world. Uh, it's not about, I mean, I am humbled by seeing these, uh, those who work for peace on the ground and peace building is their profession amidst war and conflict. Um, it's not about being modest. Um, I'm just trying to acknowledge and recognize the work of those who choose to be peaceful there, not because uh, they might be um, paid better or because the term might seem sexier, but uh, just because they are passionate about it. And um, this is they, they often pay uh, a significant cost for that, either by their own lives or by the lives of the one that they love. And um, this is really important. Like in my work at ICANN, for example, I, I, I know uh, a woman peace builder who is conducting peace building shuras or council and constantly takes the courage to speak with the most notorious insurgents groups and trying to bridge the bridge the gap trying to speak with them and try to open a dialogue and i see her uh, I, I see a kind of great uh, superpower in her and i know a woman who runs foundation working on cultural peace and 
producing a strategic knowledge and tools. She's producing books and pieces of on, on, on women's rights, human rights, transitional justice. And it's been few days that I heard that she has to actually burn around 19,000 books because she feared that if Taliban get hold of them, it would be so dangerous for she and her team. And um, hearing about that is was very heart-wrenching for me. And But at the same time, I, I, I know that how much powerful they are and, and how how source of superpower they are. And actually, again, my superpower is uh, being part of this, this, this great uh, group of women. Uh, yeah. So, Malala, how did you learn and how can others learn to be peace builders? So, again, this is something, uh, I think this is very personal. First of all, I just don't want to single myself out and say we are peace builders, others not. Every person can be and has the potential to be peace builders if they want and if they just look around critically. I think this is a time that we all have to look around us critically. I, I'm, there are so many, so many things that you can know that that so many things going on which has nothing to do with peace and it's a time for us for i don't know for those who work in civil society those who work in academia those celebrities even those politicians to know that it's a time that you should do something which is more about peace rather than waging war and my as sananjan also said for me it was more a personal path. My parents and then all my life myself and my brothers have been going through place to place, have been experiencing the, the war and its byproducts, which is discrimination, which is marginalizations, which is deprivation. I personally was excluded from it, from normal education because I was I was undocumented refugee, the same for my brothers, the same for my friends, and the same for my generation, the whole generation. And seeing those, my, my, my first and foremost feeling is that as a, as a human being, I do not want to see that happen to my kids, to other kids, especially that we are in 21st century and whatever is happening, you shouldn't see that someone is deprived from the very basic rights, which is education, or even which is the rights to life. To, to life. You see that, yeah, you see that people, I, I'm just speaking about Afghanistan, very, very young kids are lying on, on, on the ground in streets. And this is really heartbreaking. And as a human being, I just, I just want to try my best to at least solve a very tiny part of it. And I don't know if we can call it peace builder, peace, being a peace builder or whatever, but this is, at this moment, this is the, 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 the duty of every one of us. Yeah. Thank you. I think that was profound, Malalai. Thank you. Uh, Sanam, I wonder if you would just comment for a minute about how you learned and how others can learn 
to speak truth to power. I think it takes courage and strength, but much more than that. What, what, how do people learn to do that? That's a very good question. I wanted to just talk about the, the peace building part, which maybe is, is related to all to, to, to the question that you're asking also is that, you know, if we think about this country and we think about what happened in the elections and all of my American friends, when I asked them, their families were split down the middle. Everybody had either a, you know, if you have, if you were a Biden supporter, you had a Trump supporter in your family, very close. And what I found extraordinary was that in the four years that the Trump administration was in power, most people ha didn't have the courage to sit and talk to each other around the table because God forbid we end up having divisions. So it was papering it over and papering it over. Um, what peace builders do is they have the courage to sit down and face the other side, to look for the humanity, to see the other's truth, because we all have a truth, right? And it's not necessarily to say, I'm, I'm gonna bulldoze over you and, you know, it's, it's more about saying, let me listen to you. Let me hear what you're saying and let's find where we come together. And this is something that I've learned over the years from my own experience, again, from, from the Iranian context of seeing that it's very easy to constantly say, I'm against this and I'm against that. And these are all bad people and think about everything in a calm, in a sort of two dimensional way and, and, you know, put myself above it all. But the truth of it is that that doesn't do anybody any good. And so it's that question of saying, are we willing to engage? Are you willing to respect my humanity and my values? And, and, and am I willing to respect yours? And then where do we find some commonality? And one of the things that I found is that everything that is so much of the discourse, whether we like it or not, is framed around what we don't want. Um, and, and this comes back to your question, I mean, how do you speak truth to power? Well, you know, the war on terror, the war on drugs, the war on this, the, these are all, we're against something. My, my question and the way that I've always looked at it is, what are we for? Let's talk about what do I stand for? What's my vision? In five years time, what do we want? What do I want the country to look like? What do I want for my family? What do you want for your family? And what's your nightmare? The minute you humanize this, you see how much we have in common with each other. I've done research with, um, and through the years that I've done this work, I've, I've talked to militias in, in Liberia. I've talked to gang members in Jamaica. I've talked to Taliban leaders in other places. Um, you ask that question. You, I, you stand with a bunch of Jamaican gang members and say to them, what are you worried about? What do you want? And the answer that I got from a bunch of these guys was, well, we have children and we want them to be educated and well-spoken and have good table manners. I have children. They were four years old, five years old at the time that I went to Jamaica to do this research. And all of a sudden, this guy and I had something to talk about. Now, he may have guns under his bed and that might be his way, his only way to make a livelihood and, and I'm anti-weapons. But the point was we started somewhere and then we start, we get to the point where he's telling me about how he wants his chicken coop and how the other guy needs his bike to be able to do deliveries. People on the ground in any country, you know, ordinary people just want dignity. They want respect and they want to be able to live their lives. They are being so exploited 
by people sitting in their armchairs for, far removed using them, whether they're using them as soldiers in national armies, whether they're using them in gangs, whether they're using them on militias. And, and But the, our young people are being exploited by a bunch of people and who don't care about their lives. And to the extent that I have the power to speak, I will raise these issues. And, and you know, to end maybe one, one additional thought is that the right to freedom of expression isn't just a right, it's a responsibility. When you've come from a country where freedom of expression lands you in jail or can mean death, and then you come here or you come to a place where they claim freedom of expression is a core value, um, I don't see it as just a right. I see it as my responsibility to speak and to provide the spaces for others to speak as well. And when you, all of a sudden, when you speak, you know, somehow it gives the courage to others to actually raise up their voice and say, hey, I, I relate to that as well. Yeah, that is great. That is really great insight. And I appreciate you sharing all of that. It, it's uh, really a, a deep significance to think about how you as different a person as one can imagine from a Jamaican gang leader uh, finding common ground and beginning a dialogue from that spot, that point of common ground is really uh, a great example to all of us. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you both. Uh, we've gone well over the time that uh, I'd promised for you, and I apologize for that, but I've been wanting to hear what you have to say, and I appreciate you saying it. Before we go, uh, Sanam, I, I want to ask you to tell people how uh, people can learn more about ICANN and the work you're doing. And, and Malala, I want you to introduce us to your son before we wrap up. So he's been participating in this uh, podcast all along. So we want to make sure that he's well introduced before we adjourn, mm -hmm. if you're okay with that. So Sanam, tell us about ICANN sure. and then Malala, you can introduce us to your son. Thank you. Um, you can learn more about ICANN from our website, ICANNPeacework.org. Um, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at the handle is at what the women say. My handle is Sanam BNA um, on Twitter. We are, we're on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we are we are doing a fundraising um, a call now to to help our Afghan partners um, and those that have come to us uh, either to for staying in Afghanistan or for their transition if we're able to get them um, evacuated. So so we would welcome your support. But more than anything else. Um, you know, I often say, uh, put your mouth where your money is. The more people we have actually raising the concerns and the issues that we have, writing to your senators and your congressmen saying, we care about this, it matters. Um, uh, that, uh, is, that is often more than its weight in gold, um, to be honest with you. So thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for giving us this chance. Yeah, thank you. Malalai, introduce us to your son. Ben, come here. No, now he doesn't want. <laughs> now he doesn't want to be on the show. He just wanted to, yeah, to be, yeah, to be here, to be present, or during the hour speaking. But now he doesn't want. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we're glad you've had him along for the ride. Thank, uh, you. thank you very, very much. Uh, I, I listen. I, I want to encourage you, congratulate you for the great work you're doing in peace building, and encourage you to keep it up. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for taking time. Thank yeah, you so thank much. Thank you for having us. All righty. Let's do some good. Bye. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.